So we are in this series, Love Walked Among Us, uh, which, in which we're slowing down to look at the person of Jesus. Uh, our desire uh, for each other and for you is to see you experience and live the abundant life. Jesus had this statement of, I came to give life and give it to the full or give it abundantly. There's a man named Henry Drummond who wrote a great exposition on 1 Corinthians 13 called The Greatest Thing in the World. And he says this, to live abundantly is to love abundantly. If you want to live to the full, you got to love to the full, is what he's saying. Now, here's the challenge is what is love? Everybody likes to use the word and to claim that they're doing it, but how do we actually define love? And we believe in all of our hearts and in all of our minds that we have to look at the person of Jesus because Jesus is God and God is love. Jesus is God and God is love, so we have to zero in and look at the person. Many of us, if you've been around the church, um, really have this kind of missing person. We know the theology about Jesus, that he's God. We know that he did all the things we just sang about in Christ alone, but we've missed his cadences, if you will, how he walked, how he talked, why he did this there but didn't do it here. Right? Really slowing down to see what he looks at to listen to what he's feeling and to see how he's acting. So that's the aspiration of this series. Today we're in a unique passage in John chapter 7 that when read, you may go, why are they going to look at this passage? But I think we'll see it as we get through the morning. So I'm going to actually ask you to stand to your feet again as we read this passage. And we stand in order to remind ourselves that the words that we read really are the very words of God breathed out to us. John chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he stayed, after he said this, he stayed in Galilee. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we've already sung this morning that we need you. God, we're asking that your voice really would be louder than every other voice. God, so many of us have voices going around in our heads and in our hearts. Um, let your voice be louder than those. And God, there's so many voices in our world and around us that it's confusing, so let your words be clearer than all other words. God, teach us your truth, that the truth may set us free. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So the longer you live, the more you know that this is true, but anything that is good takes time. 
There's all of these um, images throughout the Bible in which Jesus is using imagery of gardening or of agriculture and this idea of seeds falling to the ground and the reality is, is it takes time for them then to sink in and then the ground has to be cultivated and things have to be given birth underground that you never even see. The ground has to be cultivated, what begins to grow and sprout has to be pruned. In order to ever see something as beautiful as you may have intended or God ultimately intends. In order for something to be in full bloom, it takes time. So if you think about a white rose, there's a white rose that looks like this that you may hand to somebody. Maybe at Valentine's Day, you gave a white rose. And if you didn't know this, the white rose was actually an image in the history of the church about ultimate purity. But even for a rose to get to this point takes a tremendous amount of time. And then from here to full bloom takes even more time. And a rose in full bloom, you may look at and then cast a glance out and look away. But when you really look at the intricacies, it's very beautiful. But things that are beautiful take time. It takes time to be in full bloom. Now, there's a question fundamentally in our passage of why is it that Jesus at certain moments does a miracle when people want it and or ask for it, and here he doesn't. And I would submit to you the reason he doesn't here is because the disciples are not yet in full bloom. More was actually needed within them. So look at this passage and so that we can take some things away about what real love is. John chapter 7 in verse 1, he starts saying this, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee. Now after this would make you look back to chapter 6 and most scholars would say that there's a whole section of time, months likely, between chapter 6 and chapter 7. So it isn't immediate, most scholars would say, that there's a section of time. So there's this question of, well, what's Jesus doing in the meantime? Well, certainly he's doing what we see him do throughout the Gospels. He's spending very ordinary, normal time with his disciples. Jesus was incredibly patient. He was patient for that which God was doing in an individual or in the world to come to full bloom. But he was patient. And remember, Jesus is God, right? And God is what? Love. Well, what does 1 Corinthians 13 say about love? Right when it starts to describe it, it says love is patient. It's kind. It doesn't envy or boast. And it's not arrogant. But love is patient. Love is willing and understanding that growth and beautiful things to come about. For things to come about in full bloom takes time. So love is patient. And you see Jesus' patience even in this time that happens between chapter 6 and chapter 7 is that he's spending very ordinary time with his disciples. He's certainly eating with them. He's walking with them. He's pointing things out on the side of the road. It's very unhurried, likely very unrushed time. You see this all over with Jesus, but he's naturally, in the natural world, doing very supernatural things. Now, this is really important because the great stuff of life, right? The great stuff of life, if you follow the greatest showman, if you've ever seen the movie, is standing right in front of us. 
all the time. And yet we miss it for so many reasons, and many of them is busyness. And I'm tremendously guilty of this. So I'm up here on stage because Tim is sick. I get this, and Tim's feeling bad about it, so he sends me all his notes. He says, I know we do things really differently, but here's my notes. I don't know if they'll help at all. And Tim says something brilliant in his notes that I'm going to quote to you. Now, I'm not saying Tim Mon is brilliant. I'm just saying he said something brilliant. So here's what he says. He says, lack of busyness is the environment for love and discipleship. Now you're like, that sounded pretty simple. But listen, lack of busyness is the environment for love and formation, discipleship, growth, things to fully come into bloom. Now, this struck me a lot because I'm a pretty busy person. So when people will say, hey, I'd love to meet with you, they'll say, but I know you're so busy. What I loved when Tim said this to me was it immediately struck me, if, if I'm that busy, I'm not that loving. If I feel very hurried and anxious, and so I have to remind myself every morning, like I'll be getting ready and I'll, I'll, I'll feel this impulse to you got to get out and get going. There's things to do and people to see, Right? I've got to get out and get going, and I'll have to remind myself, God, help me to avoid hurry at all possible costs. Because you know this, especially if you have a family or you have a spouse, it's amazing how fast you overlook people and people get in your way when you're in a hurry. Hurry and busyness is not the environment for love. It really is the environment for selfishness. So that statement struck me. Lack of business is the environment for love and discipleship. And I do think you can get there with these months in between six and seven. There's another reality to love being patient. Is love is patient to act. Now look at this in this passage. So after this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. That's kind of obvious, right? I don't really want to be dead so I'm not going to go there, which is, I just have to say this fast, which is very interesting in the end that the Jewish leaders are the ones who kill him. I don't know what Jesus knows or doesn't know, but here he avoids being killed. And he's going to say again, because his time hasn't come. You see that in John a lot, but we're not going to go over there right now. So, but when the Jewish festival of tabernacles, in your version, it may say the feast of booths was near, Jesus' brother said to him, now you have to understand something about the Festival of Tabernacles, or called the Feast of Booze, is this huge moment where tons of people, they would say millions, or a million at least, descends upon Judea at this time. Now, Jesus' brothers and some of his disciples have been seeing the things we've been seeing through this series, that Jesus is doing miracles, that his compassion for a woman who lost her only son, a widow who lost her only son... He raises her, a woman who's been caught in adultery. He identifies with her and in a very real way saves her in that moment. To a man with a withered hand, he heals it. So they've seen all this. So they're like, now there's this huge audience. And here's what they say. Obviously, right? Leave Galilee. They say to Jesus, they're looking at Jesus. Now, get yourself in the moment. We're trying to slow ourselves down to get in the moment. Feel the emotion of this. Jesus, leave Galilee Go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. So there's already people in Judea who are saying they're trying to follow Jesus or saying, hey, here's this teacher. And his brothers are like, hey, listen, 
They need to see this stuff. Like, go show the stuff. Like, go do that stuff out around those people. There's all kinds of people there, and these disciples need to see the work you're doing. And then they get really rational with him, right? Like, this is pretty obvious, Jesus. Nobody that wants to become a public figure acts in secret. That's logical, is it not? If you want to be a public figure, you go out in public. Since you're doing these things, since you are, they've seen it. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. That's very rational, right? That's rational. But John feels a burden to then say, for even his own brothers, the ones who are saying this, did not believe in him. So John's trying to make a point that begins to open up why Jesus responds the way he does. But John's opening up a point that the brothers weren't really doing this from a point of faith in God or belief in Jesus. So if they weren't doing it in faith of God, they probably weren't doing it ultimately in love for the disciples to actually see this stuff. Now, it doesn't say this directly, but what you feel in these brothers is an anxiousness. They're anxious, right? Here's an opportunity. You're going to miss the opportunity. And you have underneath them a deep conviction that going public and being seen is the ultimate point. Nobody who wants to be a public figure acts in secret. Now, I got to assume the way Jesus responds is he probably sits there at that moment and goes, who said I was trying to be a public figure? The way you think about public figure. And who said right now that I need to anxiously go public or I'm going to lose my opportunity? What's so amazing about love being patient is in love's patience it oftentimes does not succumb, give in to the demands of another. It doesn't just do whatever the person asks or says. This again is really convicting to me because it's amazing how in my own home when a situation arises and there's a fight or there's a fit or there's something going on, some people will disengage, right? And guys will go to their man cave and just go, la, 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 right? Like, I don't want anything of it. I over-respond. They're both anxious responses. One retreats and I engage like, let me just fix it and fix it now. Why? Because I don't like the way this feels, right? Just be quiet. Stop. Stop bugging your mom. Stop bugging each other. Stop fighting. And ultimately, stop bugging me, right? So you respond out of anxiety. But there's this amazing thing with Jesus fundamentally that is love because Jesus is God and God is love and he's waiting for things to fully take bloom where he allows people to be in the midst of their struggle. Jesus do this. Nope. <laughs> what? Like, well, why wouldn't you do it? And you can just feel their anxiety boil even more. Are you nuts? What are you doing? 
And then he doesn't even sit there and go like, you guys are freaks. Like, does it feel good to be like that? Like you're anxious mess. You're thinking everything's about fame and you want to get fame. Isn't life exhausting like that? He doesn't even do, he just lets them sit there. Like, I'm going to let you experience what anxiety feels like. I'm going to let you feel the burden of popularity and fame. It's like when God's sitting there with the nation of Israel and they're like, we want food, right? We don't even have any meat. He's like, you want meat? I'm going to give you so much eat that, meat that you make yourself sick. Right? I'm going to let you sit in it. Feel it. And he's not going, I'm going to punish you by doing it. He says there's something about bearing up under the reality of our own foolishness. Another way the Bible would talk about our own sin. A reality of us saying we're not always in love meant to make people codependent. So we intentionally at times erect barriers by saying, no, we're not going to do that. So the person has to experience it so they can actually figure it out. That's an amazing thing, is that love is often not meeting a perceived demand or need, but that love intentionally creates space at points. So here, what Jesus sees, and I don't think it's hard to fill it out, is that a miracle here, if Jesus had given in to the demands or the requests of his brothers, a miracle here would have actually just been a manipulation of power, not love. Right? Which tells you something about Jesus, that Jesus isn't just sitting there going, let me put my good stuff on display so you know I'm God. He is trying. I mean, John writes the letter, writes the book of John so that we might believe. And we go, well, if we're going to believe, then do a miracle, right? That's how we believe. And he's going, no, here you're going to see and begin to believe by how I love through not doing it. Because a miracle here would have fed into their aspiration for fame, power, and publicity, they want to be on display. So they want their brother to be on display. They want a public announcement. And God's going, actually, wisdom comes in the secret unnoticed things. That's the amazing part about love being patient is these six months, we don't even know what he's doing. And when you're willing to live in patience, you're willing to go unnoticed and unrecognized. And the human heart in sin and everything our culture says, be recognized. I'm frustrated that I don't get recognized in my own home. I'm frustrated that I don't get recognized in my job. I'm frustrated that they don't see me. And Jesus is going, take a deep breath and understand that the nature of true wisdom, true love, which means abundant, full life, is actually found in patience and in being unnoticed so that we might experience true dependence. They thought of fame and publicity. Jesus thought of love. Here's another thing that's so important for us to understand in our culture, but let me say this, the church has to understand this. Ends don't justify the means. Well, then they'll talk about you, Jesus. Isn't that the whole point? Then you'll have an opportunity to just speak the word, Jesus. And we go, and doesn't faith come from hearing and hearing by the word of God? So therefore, any ends, any way to get the word out justifies the means by what we do. Trash. Trash. There's a reason, there's a cliche statement of more is caught than taught. The way you do something will speak louder than the way you speak it. That's 
true. That's why Francis Schaeffer made this statement that we in redemption have adopted as a cultural commitment is that we want to do the Lord's work the Lord's way. Ends don't justify means. That makes it worse. When you communicate a loving message without living love, people question the message, not the way you lived. They're the same thing. He's the living embodiment of love. And he knows at this moment, a miracle here doesn't justify the end result of people talking about Jesus. It isn't loving. So he doesn't do it because his brothers and the disciples are not yet in full bloom. And so then he begins to talk, which colors this for us even better. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. What do you think he means by that? Therefore, Jesus tells them, my time has not yet come, but for you, any time will do. I want to bloom and I want to bloom now. I want to be public and I want it to be now. I want it fixed and I want it fixed now. I don't feel good, give me a pill. I don't like the noise, stop talking. But Jesus understands anything to come into full bloom takes pressure, it takes time, it takes anguish. In all of our lives, it takes failure, it takes suffering. There's a time the rose doesn't see the light because it's buried in the ground. But for you, any time will do. Just do it! He's like, that's not the way it is with God. My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. Then he says this, the world can't hate you, but it hates me. Why can the world not hate them? Because in the language of the Apostle Paul, and they're putting it on display, they've been conformed to the world. They are the world. The world is them. They're operating out of this logic of the world of pride, of quick fixes, of easy answers. The world can't hate that. You are that. But me, that's actually living congruent with the full life, that actually is love displayed, well, me, by my very life and by my words, the world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. And now we're like, okay, Jesus, this is, like, this is where it gets bad. Evil? Like, that's a little bit exaggerated. Evil. And Jesus is like, evil. Like, evil, evil. And so for a minute, we got to go, well, what is, what is evil? Evil in its simplest way, you have to understand this. Biblically taught is a distortion of that which is good. So even if we go, what is evil personified? And we go, well, it's Satan. Do you know Satan was an angel named Lucifer made by God? Who, took, who believed lies that he could be in the place of God and because of his pride, he falls. We've said this before in here. Tom said it a lot. I've said it multiple times. C.S. Lewis's statement it was through pride that Lucifer became the devil, a good created being distorted. Then Lucifer speaks 
unloving words to Adam and Eve who are made in a good world with good flesh and through lies and distortions, the twisting of that which is good, we now have flesh that operates counter to God, which is counter to love because God is what? Love. Sin at its core, which is evil in action, sin is anti-love. Read Romans 12, 13, and 14. This statement of love is the fulfillment of the law, Paul makes the argument that when we don't obey the law, it's not love. And sin is anti-love. So he's saying when you've conformed yourself to the world, the world's works are evil. They're lies. They're destructive. They're telling you it's true. And in fact, it's foolishness. Those who claim to be wise become fools. Those who say, well, that's just rational, it's obvious, you want to be a public figure, never ask the question, what motivates the desire to be a public figure? Sin is a radical curvature inward, love is oriented outward, and this is all an inward motivation, which is why Jesus doesn't act, because it would be unloving. So he says, you go to the festival, I'm not going. Because my time has not yet fully come. So here's the question. How does Jesus know the time? So love is patient because it's waiting for things to be in full bloom. How do we know what love is? And how do we know when to act and when not to act? Now, if I could explode on stage right now, to make everybody go, whoom, pay attention, I would do it. I can't make myself do that, but I'd want to. Okay. The Apostle Paul, if we go, well, how do we get patient? The Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and it goes on. So anytime I hear love is patient, the spirit, the fruit of the spirit is patience. The first thing I think when I hear love is patient is I'm not. So what should that then lead me to? Should it lead me to getting rubber bands on my wrist and every time I'm impatient, getting it as far back as I can? Whack! Boom! Okay, that's going to remind me to be patient. Or am I just going to go, ow, that hurt, and then go be impatient again? When I go, you got to be patient, 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 I think I need to hear Jesus saying, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. It's the fruit of the Spirit that brings patience. Now, an important point of that is this isn't fruits of the Spirit. Because many people read this list and they go, well, I'm good at goodness, and I'm pretty faithful, and I'm kind, but man, I struggle with patience. It's fruit, singular. If the Spirit of God is in you and working, what manifests itself out of the Spirit's work is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. You don't get patient by going, I need to be more patient. That's part of it is the focus. But where does patience come from but the Spirit of God? How did Jesus know to wait to be patient? Well, here's what Jesus says himself in John chapter 5, this very book that we're looking at. Jesus says specifically about how he knows when to do something. John chapter 5, verse 19. 
So Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing on his own accord. Wait a minute, he's God, right? He is. He's truly God and truly man. But God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's truly God. But he's always living in dependence upon the Father. He says, I can do nothing on my own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. I can only do what I see the Father doing. At other points he says, or do what I hear him telling me to do. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. He operates in communion and empowered by the Father through the Holy Spirit. The secret of love is dependence on God. The secret of love is what? Depends on God. That's when I want to explode. Because I'll have these moments a lot with people, and we'll be, they'll be in the midst of a challenging situation. And I had this question breached to me, and now I use it because I think it's great. And I'll say, what are you getting from God on that? And I have many of us in me at times where it's like, huh? They look like that's the weirdest question in the world. What am I getting from God? And then I go, well, one of the reasons we're so confused and we feel like we have so little power is we're trying to do it in our own power. And did you know something? We're not even made by God as human beings to do it in our own power. We're made by and for God. The reason he says my yoke is easy and my burden is light is that when you walk in fellowship with God, with man, these things are impossible. That's why it feels impossible. You want to know why it feels impossible? Because it is impossible on your own. But with God, all things are possible. The beauty of being called into love is that you only know what love is as you actually try to love. And as you try to love, you understand this is impossible unless I have the God who is love operating and living within me and through me. Folks, take a deep breath. If all this is every Sunday is principles and self-help for you and your own power to live better, don't call it Christ. Don't call it Christianity. Don't call it biblical. The Christian life is the spirit-infused life. God penetrating me, me abiding in God, me saying, God help when it's confusing. Not being perfect, but going, when you're confused, ask for clarity. Ask who for clarity? God. Ask God for clarity. When you sit there and you encounter a medical situation, God, what do I do? When you encounter a troubled child, God, what do I do? When you encounter joblessness, God, what do I do? God, I need you, right? Don't just sing the songs. May we pray the prayers. Patience is dependence. Love is dependence. Then Jesus says, because my time has not yet fully come. This phrase time is so interesting in the Gospel of John. Because he's waiting for his disciples to be in full bloom, to give them a command and then give them the greatest expression. He's waiting. The reason he doesn't do here and he says, my time hasn't come. He says this at least four times in the Gospel of John. He's at a wedding. They say, we ran out of wine. Make wine now. My time hasn't come. Here at the Feast of Booths, go make yourself a public figure. My time hasn't come. Twice when he's escaping murder in John 7.30 and 8.20, my hour has not yet come. But then it, towards the end of the Gospel of John, he says, my hour has come. So in the Passover week, John 12, the hour's come. The upper room, 
when he teaches them this profound lesson through washing feet that the point of the human life is to love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus knew this was the hour. In the garden, Jesus prays to the Father, my hour has come. When he sits in the upper room, he washes the disciples' feet and he says, Jesus knew this was the hour to teach them the greatest of all the commandments. If your teacher stoops down and washes nasty feet, when you say, you will not wash my feet, for you're like the most public figure, you're my teacher. And he goes, unless I wash your feet, you can have no part of me. Then Peter's like, well, then wash all of me, right? He knew they had seen enough up to that point that there was some break that he could go. You can now hear the command, love your neighbor as yourself. That's part of the time. But the fulfillment of the time was when Jesus comes out of the garden and makes his path to the cross. The penultimate expression. For greater love has no one than this than they lay down their lives for their friends. The penultimate example of I will sacrifice myself for your good. I will consider the needs of others as more significant than your own. The penultimate example of taking the evil of the world, that they brussel against the testimony of Jesus because the evil of the world, he takes upon himself all of the anti-love in our hearts, in your heart, in the world, upon himself dies a criminal's death on the cross. He takes our sin upon himself because he so loves the world so that in the end, through his death and resurrection and destruction of the power of evil, we might, by being infused by the Holy Spirit, actually live out the command, love your neighbor as yourself. Redemption, if there's anything I can say to you, when we sit here and go, love is a better way, love is a better way, when you hear us say, Jesus was love, imitate him. My God, if you ever hear that as though you can do it in your own power, shame on us. With man, it's impossible. With God whom you were made by and for, with God whom we were made by and for, all things are possible. Amen? Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, fill us with the Holy Spirit that we may fulfill this beautiful command to love you with all we have and to love our neighbors as ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.